welcome everybody to episode 124 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to our continued discussion with special guest Micah Bear about the 1950s classic science fiction opus. Let's see, we'll call it an opus. Forbidden Planet. Now, in episode 123, a couple of days ago, Micah and I talked about the cast a little bit, but we didn't talk too much about one of the main, I'm going to call him a person, one of the main people in the films. I'm talking about Robbie the Robot. And in this episode, Micah and I are going to talk a little bit more about Robbie. We're going to talk a little bit more about our experiences with Robbie and just continue to talk about the film overall. I'm excited. This was a fun movie to cover here on Monster Kid Radio, kind of outside the box. When I first launched Monster Kid Radio, I figured we'd be hanging out with Frankenstein's monster, Jekyll and Hyde, Dracula, you know, maybe the Big Bugs or Godzilla, King Kong, something like that. To bring in some classic science fiction like this, man, this was a real treat. And I hope you enjoy the conversation that Micah and I have. Before we get to that, though, let's talk about our website over at monsterkidradio.net. From here, you can find out everything you need to know about the show between episodes. There's links to all sorts of things that we talk about here on Monster Kid Radio, including the Bands and Songs button, which is where you're going to find links to every piece of music that's ever appeared here on Monster Kid Radio, up to and including the song 40 Million Miles to Earth, which is the song that opened this episode of Monster Kid Radio. It's by the Blue Giant Zeta Puppies. It appears on their EP, 40 Million Miles to Earth. You can find them over at the bluegiantzetapuppies.bandcamp.com. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. You'll hear it in its entirety at the end of the show. But yeah, head over there, click on that Bands and Songs buttons, and that's going to take you to every band that's ever appeared here on the podcast. And if you do check out any of the bands and buy any of their albums or whatever, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Also over there, you're going to find links to our YouTube page, our Flickr album, and our Live 365 radio station. It's internet radio, it's streaming, and it's nothing but music and sounds from horror and science fiction films from the 30s through the 60s with the occasional bit from Matinee or Ed Wood or something like that thrown in there as well. I hope you enjoy that. If you do, check it out. Now, of course... You can also find a link to our Amazon store and our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and then get yourself added to the special thanks section of the website, which will be going live next month. Or hear your name in the credits of the show or help us program an upcoming episode of Monster Kid Radio, pick a topic for a future Monster Kid editorial, or even start getting stuff in the mail from Monster Kid Radio Central if you're a patron and you participate in our Patreon page. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Monster Kid Radio. If you support us, you help us keep the lights on here at Monster Kid Radio. And eventually, if we can hit the final milestone, you're going to help us make sure that we can bring you more coverage from Monster Bash next year in 2015. Our contact information is also on our website, and we'll go over that at the end of the show. For now, though, let's get back to Micah Bear, Robbie the Robot, Dr. Morbius, Leslie Nielsen, and everybody else on Forbidden Planet. We'll do that right after this. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. 
imagine yourself as one of the crew of this faster-than-light spaceship of the future, sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Sir, we're being radar scanned. United Planets Cruiser C-57D, J.J. Adams commanding. Who are you? Morbius of the Bellerophon. Oh, Dr. Morbius, my orders are to survey the situation on Altair IV. Commander, if you sat down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. When you reach the Forbidden Planet, you will meet Dr. Morbius, played by Walter Pigeon. The Doctor is sole owner of this fabulous world. Anne Francis is his alluring daughter, Alta, who has never seen a young man till she meets Commander Adams, played by talented Leslie Nielsen. Not in. Didn't bring my bathing suit. What's a bathing suit? Oh, murder. You will meet a charming character in The Robot, able to produce, on order, ten tons of lead or a slinky evening gown. Always at your service. It must be the loveliest, softest thing you've ever made for me. And fit in all the right places, with lots and lots of star sapphires. Star sapphires take a week to crystallize properly. Would diamond or emeralds do? You explore all the wonders of a vanished civilization. You travel deep down into the heart of the forbidden planet to discover the incredible marvels of this lost genius race. These magnificent scenes in striking Eastman color stagger the imagination. 20 miles. Look down, gentlemen, are you afraid? 7,800 levels. Yet the wonders of the planet Altair IV conceal a strange and evil force, unknown, irresistible. You mentioned the, the doctor. I mean, there's a whole crew. There's a doctor. There's a chef. I love that everybody's got a uniform. They all look like they you know, belong to this military unit. But it doesn't matter where you are. The chef always looks like the chef. You know, he's always got the apron. He's always got the little white hat. Doesn't matter how far we are in the future. Seventeen twenty to thirty thousand in the future. You gotta have a hat and an apron. And his name is always Cookie. <laughs> Always, you know, some things uh, never change. Well, there's tradition. I mean, Roddenberry himself said that he also wanted to make Star Trek like, like a wagon train to the stars, and you know, you got the cookie, you know, the chef on the trail, that sort of thing. So why not? Why not? Right? Yep. Got to keep things some things, you know, and it it really works. You know, especially the scenes with the alcohol, iconic, Robbie the robot helping out. You know, I wanted to talk about Robbie the robot. And this is a good assignment, Eddie. You, Robbie the robot. I mean, awesome. It's Robbie the Robot. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. He was inducted into the Robot Hall of Fame a while back. I mean, he is an iconic creation that, you know, we're talking about him as if it's a real robot. (gasps) Spoiler, he's not a real robot. Oh, no. (laughs) It's a man in a suit with a whole bunch of electronic stuff on it. But he looks awesome. He does. And honestly, he had a heck of a career. He really did. Uh, The first time I saw Robbie, when was the first time you saw Robbie? Because I didn't grow up. 
Well, I mean, would this be it, the film? This would have been it. This was my first Robbie. The first time I saw Robbie was in Gremlins. Interesting. Yeah, because he has a, a cameo in that when the dad's at the invention convention. Right. He's on a payphone. That's amazing. That's the first time I saw him. He had this role, and then he was in another movie called um, was it The Invisible Kid. Yep. Get the Pentagon. Class A emergency. The Joint Chiefs of Staffs are expecting the call. The rocket has just been entered by a robot. It lives. Life. Consciousness. A machine. It intends to put itself section by section into orbit around the Earth. And from that day forever forward, Earth will be its slave. made invisible by mysterious scientific force. Held in the sinister power of the berserk electronic brain machine developed by the boy's father, famous scientist, Dr. Tom Marino. You have 58 hours. If at the end of that time you have failed to supply the required information, the boy will be destroyed. Top scientists and brass from the armed forces confer on the emergency. One by one, they are trapped and microscopic transistors implanted in their brains. Each one of us must submit to a physical examination by Dr. Bannerman. May one ask why? Because at least two of us here, and maybe more, have one of these surgically embedded in their skulls. Which means they're completely under non-human control. Dr. Marino, you have been informed of the situation. My robot is already in space, and your son is completely in his hands. Marino, I direct your attention toward the television screen. You and your wife will remain here, and you will be obliged to look and listen. Are you ready, robot? Ready, master. Good. You may begin with his eyes. Which, or excuse me, The Invisible Boy, that's right, from 1957, and then did a bunch of TV. Yes. See, I first saw him after Forbidden Planet in a Lost in Space episode. Doesn't he and the robot from Lost in Space kind of get into it? I believe so, in the War of the Robots, I believe. Okay. I remember nothing about it other than he was there. <laughs> so which robot you like better? Gotta, I gotta go with Robbie. Gotta go with Robbie. Robbie is one of my two favorite robots, the other one being from Black Hole. <laughs> Because I'm a terrible person. No, you're not. Which which one? I don't remember his name. The one with the blender. Maximilian? Yes. The one with the blender. <laughs> no, that's Anthony Perkins. That's <laughs> <laughs> That'll go well. <laughs> oh, man. I, I do like the robot from Lost in Space because we have a lot more of him. You know, more of, of the danger, danger. My arms are flailing. My arms are flailing. You know, there's a lot of that. Yep. But Robbie the robot striking profile striking image looks good and like we talked about he had a, a career he a quote-unquote career right through a bunch of tv some twilight zone you know we talked about lost space man from uncle columbo the adams family yeah and i do remember seeing him as a kid on an episode of mork and mindy yeah i never watched it so i missed him there <laughs> but then i did see him in a. Actually, in the, in the movie that I will not say anything good thing good about, which was Looney Tunes, back in action, which I watched because I was taking care of a smaller child, and 
I wish I could have that time back. I had heard that Robbie the Robot, as well as a bunch of other classic sci-fi things, appear like in backgrounds of that film. Yeah. There's just a scene where he's just in, in the scene, but sadly, not talking. <laughs> well, let's give it this. It was directed by Joe Dante, who directed Gremlins, who's a monster kid. So We'll give it that. We'll give it that. Now, a few years ago, I was at the Sci-Fi Museum, the Science Fiction Museum in Seattle. Mm -hmm. It's not as big as I want it to be. You and I were talking off mic the other day at work when we should have been working, don't tell the boss. Nope. That, uh, I feel like the Sci-Fi Museum in Seattle doesn't get as much square footage as it deserves. It's in the same building as the music experience. And right. the music experience saying multi-level, tons of stuff, huge space. And I get it. You know, you wouldn't be able to do shows there and things like that but i feel like the sci-fi museum's like and here's the addition of the building you know it needs more space but they have a robbie the robot and a robot from lost in space there i am sure it's not the originals right of course but not. they have them sitting next to each other and they have conversations they have them programmed to talk to one another in their voices that's awesome i was not thinking about bringing my recorder when i went which is unfortunate because that'd be a great bit of audio to play right here. So, listeners, you'll just have to pretend <laughs> yep. that these two robots from the 50s are having a conversation right now. Oh, that'd be so good. That was pretty cool. I don't know if they're still there or not. I don't know. It's been a few years now. So, so Robbie the Robot, we got this great cast. We've got, well, you were talking about the set off mic. You had watched a documentary. What are some things in the documentary that's available on YouTube, which I'm sure is on the Blu-ray? stood out to you three things really leapt out one and i'll get to the sets in a moment is the soundtrack the soundtrack had not a single musical instrument in it the soundtrack's great they were using basically the proto synthesizer because synthesizers didn't exist yet they were just using a bunch of tonal transistors and programmed the entire thing by hand which blows my mind. They actually created the things like the soundtrack for the monster from the id to be this really disturbing, jarring tones, which, for the record, worked completely. Uh -huh. um, but they actually, sadly enough, were not even eligible to be nominated for anything because they did not belong to the Musicians Guild. So they were forced to be called a tonality experts or something like that in the credits, and so were not eligible for any sort of award which I thought was very sad because it's an that's amazing soundtrack. Unfortunate. Yeah, they they didn't belong to the musicians union and that's you know, that's unfortunate. I think I said that word like three times, but I, I truly believe it's unfortunate. It's a wonderful piece of music or or soundtrack. I'm a film score collector, you know, I've got I carry three iPods with me pretty much everywhere I go cuz <laughs> they're just stuffed to the eye gills with eye music. But this is such a unique piece of soundtrack there's some traditional music is like the main theme right you know there, there's an opening theme and you know some stuff that kind of plays over the end the very short end credits but throughout the entire film it's got this weird alien sound which works because we're hey in outer space yep. on this creepy little planet where people are dying there's an id monster running around there's the sound is just amazing mind-blowing and progressive really i mean it really you hear is. hear I mean, this kind of stuff later. Yeah, they, this is the father of electronica. Yeah. <laughs> Decades before its time. True, true. No theremin at all, which, you know, is kind of, again, it's a cliche of sci-fi movies, especially the 50s. There's no theremin in this. Yeah. It's all this weird pops and whirs and hmm and thrumming and throbbing. It's just, 
It's great. It reminds me of um, in the scene from Aliens when the aliens are coming down and all you're hearing, there's no music, just the background is the pinging of the radar as they see that the alien are getting closer and closer. Reminds me, um, I feel like it was taken from the scene where the monster of the id's approaching and they can't see it, and they can just hear it getting closer and closer from the soundtrack, and they're shooting at nothing, and they're still getting closer. Very intimidating, yeah. very well done. Yeah. Especially to the 12-year-old mind, for the record. <laughs> Good point. Which leads me to the sets. These sets were massive. And as I mentioned offline, the uh, gentleman in charge of creating the sets uh, decided that he wanted to make this the most epic thing he'd ever made. So he built the sets too big on purpose, all of them about twice the size and scope they were supposed to be. And by the time the budget team figured out what he was doing, it was too late and they were already half done. So he doubled his budget without getting any um, permission. <laughs> well, that's how you do it, right? Exactly. Well, and if you look at these now, you can't stop. <laughs> that's right. Got to Got to finish. And if you look at the sets, they're huge in the scene where they're fi- the monster of the ids approaching and you get to see the outline of it. That is a physical prop of the spaceship. Yeah. It was like 45 feet across. I mean, the thing's enormous. And it's used in what, four scenes? I love it, though. I love that these movies, and, and you would have this up through, I don't know, the 60s, maybe even into the 70s or 80s. There's no CG. It wasn't around back then. Nope. So there's this physicalness, this realness. There's this weight, this heaviness, this real environment in which grown men are putting on spacesuits and firing fake laser guns. I love exactly. it. I love it. <laughs> it's amazing. The other thing, which I've, I have not studied enough to be a, an aficionado of any way, but the matte painting backgrounds in this are stunning, particularly when dealing with the machine. The scene, and you may remember this one, where you see them walking along the bridge, and they're tiny. They're just tiny through the machine across this really long bridge. That was shot... In the largest studio in MGM, it's the size of a football field. Wow. And they were walking along, and they put the map painting behind it. I don't even know how you do that. That's, but they did it. That's crazy. So that was actually, effectively, that was their CG shot. That was their green screen. Yeah, that's the technology they had, matte paintings, which is, a, I feel like, a forgotten art form now, because you don't see that anymore. It's not something that's really done. And it's unfortunate, because you can get some real gorgeous cinematography, for lack of a better term, using these matte paintings. Absolutely. I personally think that barring some of the most elite CG studios out there, that the matte painting backgrounds for like the sky of the alien world Mm -hmm. is better than almost anything done in CG. It just looks more real. It does. It doesn't look like somebody can come around and hit Control-Z and make it go away. (laughs) You know? Yeah. But the matte paintings in this, the sky is gorgeous. Those those horizon shots. It makes the alien world alien. Yes. Without being so foreign that we can't understand it. There was a quote I read in a book long ago when dealing with world creation and alien worlds. And the uh, statement was, no one wants to kiss a slug. And the thing was, you can't <laughs> make it so alien that people can't relate to it. There might be one or two people out there. But, there could you know, be. But... We're not judging. <laughs> So for all you slug lovers out there, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It was one of those things. It was an explanation of why all the aliens in Star Trek look like people. Because that way you can relate to them. Now, is it realistic? No. No, not at all. Not at all. (laughs) Though they did try really hard to make it realistic when they tried to explain how it happened in later seasons. But that's a whole other topic. 
I could talk classic Trek for hours, man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and I do like the explanation that they tried to come up with. But you're right. You've got to have that touchstone. I feel like especially in movies and in the era, you know, movies of this era, like the 40s and 50s and 60s even, science fiction is not as mainstream. I mean, it's it's pretty mainstream now. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, we're recording this the weekend that Guardians of the Galaxy came out. And at least two of the characters in that film, two of the main characters, are not human-like at all. Yet that movie is blowing up box office-wise. And I don't know if you can get away with doing that back in the 50s or 60s, having a talking raccoon or having a talking plant, a tree, as a couple of your leads. Not at all. You know, and be successful. Because it's just not mainstream. The culture, the, the population has not been educated or, or brought into that type of entertainment. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not trying to talk down to the audience of these films from back then. It's just a difference in society and culture. Yeah, it's a culture thing. Over time. The pop culture thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, sci-fi had to crawl its way into relevance over decades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's there now. Yeah. I mean, I think it's there Thank now goodness. for sure. So not all of them are good. Still, you got to work your way through, you know, the after earths to get to some good stuff. Wow. You're not holding back. Well, I wanted that movie to be good, yeah. and so I'm bitter. You know, that's the thing about a lot of these movies these days, especially science fiction. We have these high demands of these things. Back then, we didn't know. Nope. You know, as a, as a movie-going public, we had no idea what was possible with sci-fi, and I think that's where some of the magic and fantasy and, and the, the amazement that you get from these films comes from, because they had no idea, you know, what's possible. So you see these map paintings. You see Robbie the Robot walking around. Mm-hmm. And it's just mind-blowing. And it's, it's, it is elite. It's amazing. It is awe-inspiring what they were capable of doing with what they had. And people's minds got to be expanded from it. I'm often accused of not enjoying movies for what they are because I'm always trying to pick them apart and figure out how they work. Well, to me, that makes them even better. For me, knowing how they put something like that together and have it be so magical – Mm-hmm. makes it even more enjoyable for me because I sometimes refer to it as having heart because you can see the, the heart and the blood and the sweat and the tears that went into creating these things. Mm-hmm. And this movie is thick with it. It's completely the the effort. And I'm going to jump back real quick. We're talking about Morbius's acting in his full body acting. The scene that changed how I viewed a lot of things after this movie was the end of this movie, where they have to explain to him what the monster of the idiot is, because he doesn't even realize it's real. And he comes to the realization that he has to protect his daughter from himself, then flees, and all of his toys, all of his power is not enough to protect her. And through whole sections of that, he's not speaking. But you can see the pain and the frustration, and in the end, his decision without words. And that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's a style of acting that, you know, he was trained in the silence. I mean, he he knew how to do that without using the words. And fortunately, he had a chance to do that in this. And boy, it's good. And it's moving. The pathos there, the emotion. The dials slowly turning up yeah. inevitably. Nothing you can do can stop it because a machine 20 miles cubed is powering it. Yes, and some of that has to go to the director. We've got to talk about – or give some respect to the director. Uh, his name is Fred M. Wilcox. Unfortunately, this was one of the last things he directed for the screen. Up until this point, he had done a couple of Lassie movies. <laughs> you know, he doesn't have a background in sci-fi. 
No, but he certainly knocked it out of the park. Well, and that almost, I think, works better because, you know, he's bringing these other tools that he's developed working on other movies. I mean, he worked on these Lassie films. Well, you know, dogs can't talk. You know, right. he has to figure out a way to tell a story with <laughs> a creature that cannot speak. Mm-hmm. And you know, he does, I assume, successfully. Otherwise, I wouldn't have well, had him come back to do a second one. Right. You know, so he's able to bring these tools that are not of sci-fi-dom to this movie that has its roots in Shakespeare and just classic storytelling. And I think it works really well. All the pieces come together. It's a wonderful puzzle. Agreed. I was actually not aware that he did the 1949 Secret Garden. Oh. The black and white, uh-huh. which I think may be the first film adaptation of that book, which has seen a number of adaptations. And sure. I've seen it, and it's really good. So kudos. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Good job, Mr. Wilcox. That's right. <laughs> so a trend. It's unfortunate, but it happens. Remakes. <laughs> there have been rumors of remaking Forbidden Planet for quite some time. <sighs> and I think you just answered the question I was about to ask with that sigh, with that groan. I don't think it could be done. There's no way. It would change the structure of the story so much. It would change it the really meaning. Would. One of the things that is often not pointed out, time period-wise of when this movie is made, one of the underlying tensions in all of this stuff is, is the threat of nuclear. Uh, one of the things it mentions is it's like 7,800, I think, nuclear reactors. Uh, some some absurd number. Something's it, it's crazy. crazy. Like, you need more than one to do... No. You, know, <laughs> you don't even need one. I mean, that's bad. Yeah, yeah, this is all bad. And there's a tension created in the time period whenever you mention something like nuclear. Yes. And that kind of tension... And that kind of cultural time and place when you release a movie is not something that can be recaptured. It's to me why you can't remake a thing like War of the Worlds properly because you're not in a place culturally where that remake makes sense. And they, this happens all the time with remakes, which were made at the right time, right place, and there are cult followings, and everyone loves them. You remake them, and everyone's like, well, it was shiny, but the people aren't in the right place. Um, so it doesn't work. And I don't know how you would recapture the feel of this movie in the modern time. I don't think it would really jive. I think a lot of genre cinema, especially of the 50s, especially anything post-World War II, really, Mm-hmm. And we start getting into, you know, we drop bombs on Japan. I mean, we, we get post to that, and the genre cinema starts talking about nuclear this and radiation that. And, I mean, it's such a keystone for that era, for the people of that era. Mm-hmm. You really have to change it up. The day the Earth stood still, you know, has this threat of nuclear annihilation. You know, we're going to come down and keep you from destroying yourselves, yep. or we're going to do it for you. You know, yeah. there's this threat, which does not ring true in the remake, you know, that came out a few years ago. Yeah, and it can't because I've never heard an air raid siren. Not, yeah, outside of what we see on YouTube or, you know, yeah. documentaries the, on the National Geographic channel. Or the first Time Machine movie. Um, well, it's true. Yeah, or something <laughs> we see on in a film. Yeah, but I've never experienced it in real life. I have never woken up in the middle of the night and wondered whether or not someone was dropping a bomb on my country. There have been things such as, you know, 9-11 that are bad, but there's no threat of nuclear annihilation 
of the obliteration of everything I know that was something that these people grew up with. Yeah. And you can't replicate that in a remake. Now, it's possible that they could make it. I'm never going to say it's not possible because there have been things that have been made that I never thought would be as good as they were going to be. But the chance of it being done right is so low. There's so few directors and actors and studios that you could get together in a combination that could really make it work. The likelihood of getting them isn't very high. (laughs) No, you've got to put all these pieces together just right. And even though we're probably in a pretty dangerous place worldwide right now, you know, with everybody having all the nuclear missiles now and, and you know, everything going on in the world, you're right. I mean, the idea of a movie like this or The Day the Earth Stood Still or something like that, The Day the Earth Caught Fire, you know, it just doesn't have the same resonance. They'd have to come up with something else, which I think might – and here I am flashing back to a former podcast I used to produce, which I think might be responsible for why zombie stuff became so popular there for a while, because the fear from that was disease and overpopulation, yep. which is kind of the world we live in now. I mean, we got the Ebola thing happening right now. Yeah, and it's it's really scary if you actually look into it. I was about to say, um, if you're going to remake a classic movie that has something, a terrifying element that you could actually make in the modern time if you actually really put your effort into it, which is a much later movie, I believe, was the Day of the Triffids. We are more likely to be scared of an army of plants than we are of nuclear war. True. Mind you, if they do a good remake of Day of the Triffids, I will watch that. Um, (laughs) The book was amazing. The movie was not the greatest thing ever made. of the Triffids, when terror reigned from the sky. The day of the Triffids, when the Earth orbits into a nightmare. When the solid world of everyday reality disintegrates. Whole population is driven by fear towards insanity. The day of the Triffids, when destruction closes in from every side. Pilot, is he blind too? No, 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 no. It's going to be starvation, fire, pestilence. Anyone caught in the middle of it doesn't stand a chance. I think we ought to get out of here and go on to Spain. How can you know it's any better there? I don't. It doesn't seem to have any central nervous system. Then how does it move? All plants move. They don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you. You have never been married? No. Why? I guess I've never been in one spot long enough to get caught. And now you are saddled with a family. It might have its points. The day of the Triffids, when law and order are overwhelmed in an avalanche of terror. Well, the movie's got some charm, though. It does. 
but I watched it at a bad time, being less than a month after having read the book. Ah, uh, yeah, and <laughs> the not book, good for it. <laughs> you know, and we've talked about this off mic as well. Books of the fifties, you know, science fiction in print and science fiction on film, mm-hmm. two completely different things. Yeah, you know, very different. One thing that I would not want to see in a remake, and listeners, we're not saying there's a remake coming. It's just been talked about for years. James Cameron at one point was attached to her or was going to do it. One thing that I would not want to see is how they would change the structure of the story because I feel like the big bang kind of finale of this film, or not really finale, but the big bang moment, is about three-quarters of the way through when they are shooting the invisible id monster. Right. And then the real finale is a very subtle, small set piece. Which is much more moving and effective, I feel like. But, but I feel uh, like not necessarily something the modern audience or modern directors and producers are going to buy into. That's what I would worry about. Is if it was remade, they would change that to where the big, the big bang would be the big monster at the end and the big explosion and all that. Which you don't and necessarily we don't need. need. That. No, not we for this. We don't need to Lucas this up. No, this is a very smart cerebral film. <laughs> Obviously, we're talking about stuff happening with the plastic educator and the brain being turned into something more powerful than it really was designed to be mm-hmm. and, and creating this monster that's killing everybody using technology. We shouldn't use, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's a very cerebral film overall. It is. And they do very subtle things. Like at the very beginning, they mentioned that, you know, he's the only survivor of the original I mean, survey team. And, you know, they all died from accidents. And all those accidents happened after he used the brain machine. And they never say he killed them, but he did. Right. And <laughs> Spoiler they, alert. <laughs> they, they let you draw the conclusion. And that makes it more potent than if there was any accusations or denials or statements. When he realizes the id is his, he has to come to grips mm-hmm. with the fact that what he did. And the first thing he does, of course, like anyone who is powerful... He denies it and pretends it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And it never gets to the point to where the audience, or at least me <laughs> as an audience member watching the movie, it never got to the point to where I felt like it was so obvious that they all should have figured it out. We were kind of wrapped up in the mystery as well. And while there are plenty of scenes with Morbius and his daughter, I really felt like the point of view of the story was from the the crew you know adams and company and we're along this ride along the ride for the mystery as well with them and it never got to the point where like you idiot it's this guy it's his brain come on don't you realize you know it never, never got to that point and even if we did get to that point it didn't matter because morbius is selling it the actor is selling it and we're just caught up in i don't know if spectacle is quite the right right word it's amazing it's spectacular but it's not fireworks and lights and explosions and swelling music. It's just no. a wonderful kind of environment to tell this kind of a story in. It is a place where the actors, the sets, the technology of the time, and the storytelling just gathered up and formed a complete movie in a way that does not happen often enough. Agreed. Now, there's a novelization that was released after the film. Mm-hmm. I read about a third of it. I've never read it. It's not that good. That's sad. I really had a hard time with it. It's written in first person. From? It, three different people. The doctor, the skipper, mm. and, well, the, the crew doctor. The right. Dr. Ostro, Commander Adams, and uh, Dr. Morbius himself. And 
it, it bounces around a little bit and it's it's just not as good and kind of changes things a little bit like the doctor's not happy about being there and the commander's kind of grumpy a lot and there are some weird illusions or, or comparisons made between you know the daughter kind of becoming less innocent and is no longer you know i'm going to tell you what's on the wikipedia page because i think they put it best the novelization compared Altera's ability to tame the tiger until her sexual awakening with Commander Adams to the medieval myth of a unicorn being tameable only by a virgin. Huh. While that's probably there a little bit in the film, I don't know if I would have gone that far. <laughs> yeah. Although I do like, and, and this does kind of illustrate a point about the film, and you were going to go on back to kind of go back to what you were talking about earlier, the arc that she goes on when she becomes more experienced in the world or universe. Mm-hmm. The animals are no longer super friendly to her. Right. You know, maybe that says something about humanity and, you know, the death of innocence and things like that. I don't know if I'd say she was de-virginized by the commander, but it's not yeah, the kind it, of movie. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things where when you watch a film, you don't need to specify everything. You have the sets, you have the music, you have physical and vocal acting, and you could just let this, hey – there's a thing that's happening here. Draw your conclusion. You don't have to hit things in the head with it. Sometimes with books, people, authors take it too, farther than they need to. And I think that's one of the scenarios where the author of the book made a determination of what that meant and then went with it. <laughs> that's pretty much all you can say to that. Cause it's, I mean, while it's there, I wouldn't make it a sexual thing. Yeah. I would never have thought of it that way. No. I mean, and, you know, he's kissing on her and they're talking about being stimulated, whatever, but I wouldn't have gone that far with this. I mean, the movie is rated G for crying out loud. Yeah. But then it's a sci-fi movie, so you can sneak in things that, like that incredibly short skirt. Yes, very G-rated. Yeah. My favorite. <laughs> G, yes, and golly, look at those legs. Yep. <laughs> well, overall, I think it's a wonderful film, and... It's certainly not the kind of thing that I would have thought about talking about a Monster Kid Radio when I first launched the show. But, I mean, talking to you, you're the one who convinced me to really talk about it here on on the podcast. Not because it wasn't like a you know a campaign or anything. You just started talking. I was like, that's a really good idea. We really need to talk about this film. I think Robbie the Robot alone makes it Monster Kid Radio fodder. But the id monster, wow. We talked about how great it looked and the animation involved, but. What a what a cerebral type of beast to go against. You know, everything it does is based on the last emotional outburst of Morbius. So he needs the crew to have a reason to leave. So the monster gives him a reason to leave. He wants to go after the captain. He goes after the captain. He's mad at his daughter. He goes after his daughter. And it moves with no rhyme or reason based on his last emotional outburst. It's great. Talk about terrifying. You're yeah. fighting a sleeping guy. <laughs> there, there's nothing you can do. You can't see it. You mentioned the aliens comparison. You know, there's the commander, the skipper, yep. trying to find it, and the guy's telling him from the ship, you know, the radar says it's here. Not radar, but the sensors say it's here, and you can't see it, and you're waiting, and the sound is increasing, and the binging, and the popping, and the – it's just great. I did find the laser guns a little silly. I, I got to say that. I got to say that the blasters I felt were a little – I don't know. They didn't have any kick. I wanted a little kick. Yeah, I think uh, Gene Roddenberry's uh, phasers were a significant upgrade. Just and just a just a little bit, really, because they didn't have a lot of kick either. But no, but at least the longer beams, not the the pulsing. Um, yeah. And specifically, if I was going to nitpick one thing in that entire scene, is when the uh, skipper 
and the first officer finally shoot their little pistols. Because remember, no matter how many soldiers there are, soldiers have rifles and commanders have pistols. This is a rule <laughs> in the Navy. One of them is pointing his gun like straight up. I yeah. have no idea who he's shooting. <laughs> well, it was invisible. It was just one of those little tiny things that I was just watching, and I'm like, hey, could you point it at the monster? <laughs> Everyone else is. <laughs> Maybe it was just so scary that he couldn't you know, collect himself. That's true. Well, he did just watch it wipe out three of his crew members, which, by the way, even though it's bloodless, pretty darn impressive. Yeah. When, he, when the id monster picks up the one guy and just tosses him around. Yeah, and it's like, hi, you're a person, and you don't matter. Yep. This takes no effort. I'm not straining. I'm just roaring and killing you. Good night. Pretty impressive. Overall, an impressive film. And I think it's certainly something that people need to see. Now, you mentioned the documentary on YouTube. I'm sure that was lifted off of the uh, Blu-ray, which I don't have in my collection yet. I got to get it because it looks like it's packed with tons of stuff. It's, it's a collection necessity, I think. I think so, too. I mean, the colors alone, it's a super widescreen film. To see those gorgeous sets, it's a great story, you know, overall. You know, the flying saucer. Yes. We were talking earlier about how we have to have those humanizing touchstones. Mm-hmm. This isn't Star Trek. We don't have the familiar starship design. We don't have space shuttles. I'm glad they didn't make it a rocket. I find it interesting that flying saucers are supposed to be like this terrifying thing, right? I mean, saucer, you know, Earth versus the flying saucers. I mean, they're they're bad, but... We've taken them over. We are now the owner of the Flying Saucer in this film. Yep. And if I remember right, this is the very first time the Flying Saucer is the good guy. Which, I don't know, this is what, the 23rd century? So do we... We stole it from Mars, probably. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Got to Mars on, an, on a good old-fashioned rocket and UFO jacked the spaceship back to Earth <laughs> and built a, a new one. We reverse engineered it, made yep. it our own, made sure there's room for Cookie. And his 60 gallons of alcohol. Which is awesome. Can't go wrong with that. We're referring to a scene in which the, the chef pulls Robbie aside and asks him for help in finding the good stuff. You know, for cooking only. Robbie, who can make, you know, star sapphires in a week and diamonds in an hour, can certainly produce a bunch of alcohol. Sure. And, and gowns. Yes. Because Altera wants a gown. Which she takes credit for, by the way. You picked up on that, right? Yes. Because in the beginning of the movie, when referring to what she's wearing, well, I made it myself. Yeah, I do all my clothes, she implies. And then later on, hey, Robbie, will you make this for me with this, this, and this? Yep. <laughs> totally made by myself. By that, I mean my awesome servant. <laughs> by that, I mean I kind of had an idea and asked somebody else to make it for me. Yeah, one last thing about Robbie that I forgot to mention earlier, which yeah. is kind of interesting, is he follows Asimov's rule of robots which isn't even actually stated. Yeah, they don't mention it at all. They prove it by having him try and uh, hurt a human. But he follows Asimov's rules, which I thought was interesting. By trying to hurt the human. <laughs> the skipper was quite trusting right there. I, I don't know if I would have just stood still. <laughs> it's like, I've seen RoboCop. I know what happens when Ed 209 doesn't listen. Yeah. I don't <laughs> you don't want Robbie the Robot to just decide to... Start gunning people down. So let's talk about Asimov's rule. It's the three laws of robotics. Yep. A robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Right. A robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And a robot must protect its own existence as long as protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Right. Now, we really don't get into the, the third 
flaw too much in Forbidden Planet. The second one's kind of danced around a little bit, but for the most part, that first flaw, it is, you know, it's right there. I love that they had that in there, but didn't talk about it. They didn't make a deal about it. They didn't recite the laws. They just had it in there. And it's even part of the the ultimate reveal at the end of the movie. Yep. Because they tell Robbie to go kill the monster, stop the monster, but he can't. Mm-hmm. Because it's all part of Dr. Morbius. Yep, he would have to kill Dr. Morbius, and he can't do that. Therefore, he can't follow the order. You know, again, it's just smart filmmaking, smart storytelling. It's not one of those things where you have to know the robotics. You, you didn't have to read the short story Runaround by Asimov to know that those are the rules. Right. It just is part of the tapestry of this film. A darn good movie. Good when you're 12 and good when you're in your 30s, and I'm assuming still good. Was that an old joke? No. Maybe. <laughs> if you had a Robbie the Robot right now, what would you have him make for you? Oh, right this moment? Uh-huh. Showing off my nerd, probably a full set of really nice armor, because I'm tired of paying so much for it. <laughs> and I would know it would be made right, because Robbie would be making it. You don't want the 60 gallons of alcohol? No, no. I can I can invite a little bit less than that at a time. <laughs> oh, so? I'm not cookie. <laughs> wow. I just put him to work on making my podcast, I think. There you go. Or, you know, make a life-size replication of myself to send to work. Even better. (laughs) Even better. As long as I can have conversations when I should be working with this replica about science fiction movies, I'm on board with that plan. That works. Micah, this was awesome. I'm glad we had you on the show, and we'll definitely have to have you back on again. I want to do a big them special. Mm-hmm. Because I, I've had other people talk about them being an influential movie and something that impacted them as well. I want to have you back on for that. Maybe I'll do it. not necessarily a roundtable, but kind of like a potpourri, have guests come back and, and share them stories. Sounds great. I'd love to. Fun. And, and you know, now that I know that you got this love of classic sci-fi, I think we'll have you back on for other movies as well. Sounds great. I'd love to. It was a lot of fun. I was serious when I mentioned to Micah that we might have him back on to talk about them. I actually want to do a big them round table down the line, include Micah's thoughts about the movies, as well as some other former guests, kind of bring them on, do a big them special here on the show down the line. So you'll hear Micah in the future at some point on Monster Kid Radio. Micah, thank you for taking the time to talk about one of your favorite classic sci-fi films on the podcast. I appreciate it. And I know the listeners dug it too. How do I know? Well, they started posting things on Facebook and I want to head over to Facebook real quick because Alan Trump, former guest here on the show posted this. Hi, Derek and the gang really enjoyed today's show on forbidden planet with Micah bear. Great story. Also about his dad, scaring him with the ant noise from them. (laughs) As we were just talking about, it also shook me up when the silent little girl suddenly started screaming after smelling the formic acid. Now, he's about to comment on something that Reber Clark posted on our Facebook page. If you listened to the last episode, you heard Reber put out a call trying to determine the name of a movie that he saw when he was growing up from the 60s involving kind of sort of zombies and voodoo and maybe somebody getting their eye gouged out with a needle, which, as people who know me know, I have an issue with eye violence. So thank you, Reber, for bringing that particular nightmare to bear. Anyway, (laughs) uh, Alan continues... I believe the movie that Reber is talking about is the 1960 film Macumba Love. I've only seen it once on gray market VHS tape many years ago, but that eye impalement scene shocked me too. Take care. Well, I don't know anything about the movie Macumba Love, but I did look it up online briefly, looked at the movie poster, and it's pretty darn cool. 
The tagline is Bloodlust of the Voodoo Queen. Well, that got my interest. I like movies about voodoo, or as former guest Paul McComas calls them, faux-do films. I want to check this movie out. Eye violence and all. The management of this theater asks you to bow your heads in silence for 15 seconds in memory of those who have passed away while watching our next attraction. Please bow your heads. truth now. Kumba love, actually filmed on an island in the South Atlantic, where voodoo is practiced today. This very moment, see the bloodlust of the voodoo queen wreaking a terrifying vengeance on those who disbelieve. To believe is to live, to disbelieve is to die. See the demon rites of the witch goddess, a spectacle of weird Shocking savagery in native jungle haunts. The most fantastic ritual ever filmed. The whole concept of voodoo is a sort of auto-suggestion, a self-hypnosis. Can we be sure that there is no evil force at work in the world? Just as there are forces for the good? Anyway, Alan, thanks for helping out over on the Facebook page. Reber, thanks for posting on the Facebook page. Anybody who uses Facebook, remember, we've got a Facebook page, which you can like and interact with me directly. Or we also have a Facebook group for Monster Kid Radio, where conversations are happening between episodes, between various listeners of the show. You have to ask to join the group, but I'm pretty quick to get you in there. So if you're a Facebook user, see you over there. Now, the other way you can interact with us here on Monster Kid Radio is my email. We have an email address of monsterkidradio at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail line at 503-479-5MKR. That's 503-479-5657. I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. And I want to thank everybody who contributed to Randy Bowser's Karloff One Man Play Kickstarter campaign. And check this out, everybody. As of this recording, it is now 107% funded. By the time this goes out, there's still five days left. So if you want to get in there and maybe get a copy of the DVD of the performance of the play, that sort of thing, or just help out, there's still time. Follow the link in the show notes to check that out. I think I can speak for Randy when I say thanks to everybody who helped support this particular Kickstarter campaign. Former guest Devin Devereaux is currently 84% funded of his Kickstarter project called Josh Lobster. And I'm just going to read to you here from the Kickstarter page. It's a little bit Goonies, a little bit Jaws, a little bit Lovecraft, and a whole lot weird. It's a comic book called Josh Lobster and... Devin's one of us, so if you are interested in checking that out, again, follow the link in the show notes. There's only a couple of days left as of this recording, so fingers crossed that he makes his goal on that. Fingers crossed that you're going to come back for the next episode of Monster Kid Radio next week. I think we're going to go back to Monster Bash 2014 
with the next episode of Monster Kid Radio. I'm going to go back and check out all the recordings that Scott Morris took of the various presentations when I wasn't in the room at Monster Bash. And I'm going to share one of those with you guys and gals next week here on the show. Who's it going to be? What's it going to be about? Well, it'll be about classic monsters, I'm sure. But you just have to come back to monsterkidradio.net or Monster Kid Radio on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it is you listen to Monster Kid Radio to find out. Until then, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song 40 Million Miles to Earth. That belongs to the Blue Giant Zeta Puppies. It appears on the EP of the same name, and it's on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Talk to everybody next week. (laughs) 